Chapter Seven of An Outcast of the Islands by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Seven. There are in our lives short periods which hold no place in memory, but only as the recollection of a feeling. There is no remembrance of gesture, of action, of any outward manifestation of life. Those are lost in the unearthly brilliance or in the unearthly gloom of such moments. We are absorbed in the contemplation of that something within our bodies which rejoices or suffers while the body goes on breathing, instinctively runs away, or, not less instinctively, fights, perhaps dies. But death in such a moment is the privilege of the fortunate. It is a high and rare favor, a supreme grace. Willems never remembered how or when he parted from Isa. He caught himself drinking the muddy water out of the hollow of his hand while his canoe was drifting in midstream past the last houses of Sambir. With his returning wits came the fear of something unknown that had taken possession of his heart, of something inarticulate and masterful which could not speak and would be obeyed. His first impulse was that of revolt. He would never go back, never. He looked round slowly at the brilliance of things in the deadly sunshine and took up his paddle. How changed everything seemed! The river was broader, the sky was higher. How fast the canoe flew under the strokes of his paddle! Since when had he acquired the strength of two men or more? He looked up and down the reach at the forest of the bank with the confused notion that, with one sweep of his hand, he could tumble all these trees into the stream. His face felt burning. He drank again and shuddered with a depraved sense of pleasure at the aftertaste of slime in the water. It was late when he reached Almayer's house, but he crossed the dark and uneven courtyard, walking lightly in the radiance of some light of his own, invisible to other eyes. His host's sulky greeting jarred him like a sudden fall down a great height. He took his place at the table opposite Almayer and tried to speak cheerfully to his gloomy companion, but when the meal was ended and they sat smoking in silence he felt an abrupt discouragement, a lassitude in all his limbs, a sense of immense sadness as after some great and irreparable loss. The darkness of the night entered his heart, bringing with it doubt and hesitation and dull anger within himself and all the world. He had an impulse to shout horrible curses, to quarrel with Almayer, to do something violent. Quite without any immediate provocation he thought he would like to assault the wretched, sulky beast. He glanced at him ferociously from under his eyebrows. The unconscious Almayer smoked thoughtfully, planning tomorrow's work, probably. The man's composure seemed to Willems an unpardonable insult. Why didn't that idiot talk tonight when he wanted him to? On other nights he was ready enough to chatter and such dull nonsense, too. And Willems, trying hard to repress his own senseless rage, looked fixedly through the thick tobacco smoke at the stained tablecloth. They retired early as usual, but in the middle of the night Willems leaped out of his hammock with a stifled execration and ran down the steps into the courtyard. The two night watchmen, who sat by a little fire talking together in a monotonous undertone, lifted their heads to look wonderingly at the discomposed features of the white man as he crossed the circle of light thrown out by their fire. He disappeared into the darkness, and then came back again, 
passing them close, but with no sign of consciousness of their presence on his face. Backwards and forwards he paced, muttering to himself, and the two Malays, after a short consultation in whispers, left the fire quietly, not thinking it safe to remain in the vicinity of a white man who behaved in such a strange manner. They retired round the corner of the godown and watched Willems curiously through the night, till the short daybreak was followed by the sudden blaze of the rising sun, and Almayer's establishment woke up to life and work. As soon as he could get away unnoticed in the bustle of the busy riverside, Willems crossed the river on his way to the place where he had met Isa. He threw himself down in the grass by the side of the brook and listened for the sound of her footsteps. The brilliant light of day fell through the irregular opening in the high branches of the trees and streamed down, softened amongst the shadows of big trunks. Here and there a narrow sunbeam touched the rugged bark of a tree with a golden splash, sparkled on the leaping water of the brook, or rested on a leaf that stood out, shimmering and distinct on the monotonous background of sombre green tints. The clear gap of blue above his head was crossed by the quick flight of white rice-birds whose wings flashed in the sunlight, while through it the heat poured down from the sky, clung about the steaming earth, rolled among the trees, and wrapped up Willems in the soft and odorous folds of air, heavy with the faint scent of blossoms and with the acrid smell of decaying life. And in that atmosphere of nature's workshop, Willems felt soothed and lulled in the forgetfulness of his past, into indifference as to his future. The recollections of his triumphs, of his wrongs, and of his ambition vanished in that warmth which seemed to melt all regrets, all hope, all anger, all strength out of his heart. And he lay there, dreamily contented, in the tepid and perfumed shelter, thinking of Isa's eyes recalling the sound of her voice, the quiver of her lips, her frowns, and her smile. She came, of course. To her he was something new, unknown and strange. He was bigger, stronger than any man she had seen before, and altogether different from all those she knew. He was of the victorious race. With a vivid remembrance of the great catastrophe of her life, he appeared to her with all the fascination of a great and dangerous thing of a terror vanquished, surmounted, made a plaything of. They spoke with just such a deep voice, these victorious men. They looked with just such hard blue eyes at their enemy. And she made that voice speak softly to her. Those eyes looked tenderly at her face. He was indeed a man. She could not understand all he told her of his life, but the fragments she understood she made up for herself into a story of a man great amongst his own people, valorous and unfortunate, an undaunted fugitive dreaming of vengeance against his enemies. He had all the attractiveness of the vague and the unknown, of the unforeseen and of the sudden, of being a strong, dangerous, alive and human, ready to be enslaved. She felt that he was ready. She felt it with the unerring intuition of a primitive woman confronted by a simple impulse. Day after day, when they met and she stood a little way off, listening to his words, holding him with her look, the undefined terror of the new conquest became faint and blurred like the memory of a dream, and the certitude grew distinct and convincing, invisible to the eyes like some material thing in full sunlight. It was a deep joy, a great pride 
a tangible sweetness that seemed to leave the taste of honey on her lips. He lay stretched at her feet without moving, for he knew from experience how a slight movement of his could frighten her away in those first days of their intercourse. He lay very quiet, with all the ardor of his desire ringing in his voice and shining in his eyes, whilst his body was still, like death itself, and he looked at her standing above him, her head lost in the shadow of broad and graceful leaves that touched her cheek, while the slender spikes of pale green orchids streamed down from amongst the boughs and mingled with the black hair that framed her face, as if all those plants claimed her for their own, the animated and brilliant flower of all that exuberant life which, born in gloom, struggles forever towards the sunshine. Every day she came a little nearer. He watched her slow progress, the gradual taming of that woman by the words of his love. It was the monotonous song of praise and desire that, commencing at creation, wraps up the world like an atmosphere, and shall end only in the end of all things, when there are no lips to sing and no ears to hear. He told her that she was beautiful and desirable, and he repeated it again and again, for when he told her that, he had said all there was within him. He had expressed his only thought, his only feeling, and he watched the startled look of wonder and mistrust vanish from her face with the passing days, her eyes soften, the smile dwell longer and longer on her lips, a smile as of one charmed by a delightful dream, with the slight exultation of intoxicating triumph lurking in its dawning tenderness. And while she was near there there was nothing in the whole world, for that idle man, but her look and her smile nothing in the past, nothing in the future, and in the present only the luminous fact of her existence. But in the sudden darkness of her going he would be left weak and helpless, as though despoiled violently of all that was himself, he who had lived all his life with no preoccupation but that of his own career, contemptuously indifferent to all feminine influence, full of scorn for men that would submit to it, if ever so little. He, so strong, so superior even in his errors, realized at last that his very individuality was snatched from within himself by the hand of a woman. Where was the assurance and pride of his cleverness, the belief in success, the anger of failure, the wish to retrieve his fortune, the certitude of his ability to accomplish it yet? Gone, all gone. All that had been a man within him was gone and there remained only the trouble of his heart, that heart which had become a contemptible thing, which could be fluttered by a look or a smile, tormented by a word, soothed by a promise. When the longed-for day came at last, when she sank on the grass by his side, and with a quick gesture took his hand in hers, he sat up suddenly with the movement and look of a man awakened by the crash of his own falling house. All his blood, all his sensation, all his life seemed to rush into that hand, leaving him without strength, in a cold shiver, in the sudden clamminess and collapse as of a deadly gunshot wound. He flung her hand away brutally like something burning, and sat motionless, his head fallen forward, staring on the ground and catching his breath in painful gasps. His impulse of fear and apparent horror did not dismay her in the least. Her face was grave, and her eyes looked seriously at him. Her fingers touched the hair of his temple, ran in a light caress down his cheek, 
twisted gently the end of his long moustache. And while he sat in the tremor of that contact, she ran off with startling fleetness and disappeared in a peal of clear laughter in the stir of grass, in the nod of young twigs growing over the path, leaving behind only a vanishing trail of motion and sound. He scrambled to his feet slowly and painfully, like a man with a burden on his shoulders, and walked towards the riverside. He hugged to his breast the recollection of his fear and of his delight, but told himself seriously over and over again that this must be the end of that adventure. After shoving off his canoe into the stream, he lifted his eyes to the bank and gazed at it long and steadily, as if taking his last look at a place of charming memories. He marched up to Almayer's house with a concentrated expression and the determined step of a man who had just taken a momentous resolution. His face was set and rigid. His gestures and movements were guarded and slow. He was keeping a tight hand on himself, a very tight hand. He had a vivid illusion, as vivid as reality almost, of being in charge of a slippery prisoner. He sat opposite Almayer during that dinner, which was their last meal together, with a perfectly calm face, and within him a growing terror of escape from his own self. Now and then he would grasp the edge of the table and set his teeth hard in a sudden wave of acute despair, like one who, falling down a smooth and rapid declivity that ends in a precipice, digs his fingernails into the yielding surface and feels himself slipping helplessly to inevitable destruction. Then, abruptly, came a relaxation of his muscles, the giving way of his will. Something seemed to snap in his head, and that wish, that idea kept back during all those hours, darted into his brain with the heat and noise of a conflagration. He must see her. See her at once. Go now, tonight. He had the raging regret of the lost hour, of every passing moment. There was no thought of resistance now. Yet with the instinctive fear of the irrevocable, with the innate falseness of the human heart, he wanted to keep open the way of retreat. He had never absented himself during the night. What did Almayer know? What would Almayer think? Better ask him for the gun. A moonlight night. Look for deer. A colorable pretext. He would lie to Almayer. What did it matter? He lied to himself every minute of his life. And for what? for a woman, and such. Almayer's answer showed him that deception was useless. Everything gets to be known, even in this place. Well, he did not care. Cared for nothing but for the lost seconds. What if he should suddenly die, die before he saw her, before he could? As with the sound of Almayer's laughter in his ears, he urged his canoe in a slanting course across the rapid current, he tried to tell himself that he could return at any moment. He would just go and look at the place where they used to meet, at the tree under which he lay when she took his hand, at the spot where she sat by his side. Just go there and return, nothing more. But when his little skiff touched the bank he leaped out, forgetting the painter, and the canoe hung for a moment amongst the bushes, and then swung out of sight before he had time to dash into the water and secure it. He was thunderstruck at first. Now he could not go back unless he called up the Rajah's people to get a boat and rowers, and the way to Patalolo's campong led past Isa's house. He went up the path with the eager eyes and reluctant steps of a man pursuing a phantom, 
and when he found himself at a place where a narrow track branched off to the left towards Omar's clearing, he stood still, with a look of strained attention on his face, as if listening to a far-off voice, the voice of his fate. It was a sound inarticulate but full of meaning, and following it there came a rending and tearing within his breast. He twisted his fingers together, and the joints of his hands and arms cracked. On his forehead the perspiration stood out in small, pearly drops. He looked round wildly. Above the shapeless darkness of the forest undergrowth rose the treetops with their high boughs and leaves standing out black on the pale sky, like fragments of night floating on moonbeams. Under his feet warm steam rose from the heated earth. Round him there was a great silence. He was looking round for help. This silence, this immobility of his surroundings, seemed to him a cold rebuke, a stern refusal, a cruel unconcern. There was no safety outside of himself, and in himself there was no refuge. There was only the image of that woman. He had a sudden moment of cruel lucidity that comes once in life to the most benighted. He seemed to see what went on within him, and was horrified at the strange sight. He, a white man whose worst fault till then had been a little want of judgment and too much confidence in the rectitude of his kind. That woman was a complete savage, and he tried to tell himself that the thing was of no consequence. It was a vain effort. The novelty of the sensations he had never experienced before in the slightest degree, yet had despised on hearsay from his safe position of a civilized man, destroyed his courage. He was disappointed with himself. He seemed to be surrendering to a wild creature the unstained purity of his life, of his race, of his civilization. He had a notion of being lost amongst shapeless things that were dangerous and ghastly. He struggled with the sense of certain defeat, lost his footing, fell back into the darkness. With a faint cry and an upward throw of his arms he gave up as a tired swimmer gives up because the swamp craft is gone from under his feet, because the night is dark and the shore is far, because death is better than strife. End of part one. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks dot com.